105. Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is a fairly lengthy psalm, and we'll not take the time to read all the way through it, but we'll just kind of work our way through it as we go. I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview of this psalm uh, before we dig into a few of the verses here. And you know that the psalms were songs of the nation of Israel, and often those songs were songs of prayer uh, to the Lord. Psalm 105 is, is really more of a sermon uh, in its um, layout, in the way that it's written, and it coincides with 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 8, where David calls upon the people uh, to give praise and to give thanks unto the Lord. It was David's psalm of thanksgiving upon the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant from Obed-Edom's house back to Jerusalem. And David calls on the people to give thanks and praise unto the Lord. And, and it, Psalm 105 coincides with that, and that's the idea behind it, to praise God and thank the Lord for His providence, for His care uh, in His people's lives. Uh, psalm 104, the preceding psalm, outlines the creative week of God. When you get to Psalm 105, this psalm begins to rehearse the early history of the nation of Israel with its patriarchs like Abraham and so on, and it continues on into the years of the Exodus uh, from Egypt. Uh, verses 1 through 7 of this psalm are full of joyful praise and they call on the people of God to extol the Lord, to exalt the Lord. In verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon His name, make his, known His deeds among the people. Sing unto Him, sing psalms unto Him, talk ye of all His wondrous works. Glory ye in His holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength, seek His face evermore. Remember His marvelous works, which He hath done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. And, and so verses 1 through 7 are full of this joyfulness and a, a call to the people to extol the Lord. You get to verses 8 through 15, and it begins to describe the earliest days of the infant nation of Israel. When you get to verses 16 through 23, it talks about the going down into Egypt by Jacob. Uh, the next verses in verses 24 through 38 tell of the coming out of Egypt. That's described. Verses 39 to 44 talks about the journeying through the wilderness, the entrance into the land of Canaan. That's all described. And then the psalm concludes with a single verse. And the bottom line calling the nation to obedience and to praise. And the Bible says here that they might observe His statutes and keep His laws. Praise be the Lord. The bottom line. Verses 1 through 5 of the psalm, it begins with this lengthy list of imperatives directing God's people to thank and praise the Lord. And he says in verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord. You can ask the question, why? Why should we give thanks unto the Lord? Well, verse 7 says that He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. In all of His doings, 
God's judgments are all over the place. In Psalm 106 and verse 1, Praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. And it sets in order for us the character of God. And this is a reason we ought to praise the Lord. To call upon His name is another imperative. And make known His deeds among the people because He's God. And what you find is this triad of spiritual orders set in here. Number one, give thanks unto the Lord. Number two, pray to the Lord. And number three, tell of all of God's goodness in this world. People were commanded to do those things then, and my friend, were commanded to do the same today. To give thanks unto the Lord. To pray. To tell of all His goodness in this world. God's gracious hand and His, pur- and his purposes, listen, are in every event of life. And I'm going to go here in just a little bit, but even when we're talking about trials of life, God's graciousness and His hand of purpose is in every aspect of life for the child of God. Even when we make mistakes, even when we do the wrong thing, God is bigger than that, and He's able to make all things work together for good. Our response to God for His gracious purposes should be praise and thanks and obedience to Him. And so I want us to break this psalm down and just work our way through it as we go through Psalm 105, and we'll trust that the Lord will use it today in our lives. The first thing that I want us to look at is that God's gracious hand and His purpose is in everything in life, even through trials. The psalmist, in these verses that we're going to read here, attributes everything in Israel's history to God's sovereign purpose. And you can see this in the, in the repeated use of the pronoun he. Notice this in verse 8. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the words which he commanded to a thousand generations. Look at verse 14. He suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sake. Look at verse 16. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He brake the whole staff of bread. Verse 17. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. Verse 21. He made him Lord of his house and ruler of all his substance. Verse 24 says, He increased his people greatly. Verse 25, He turned their hearts to hate his people. Verse 26, He sent Moses. Verses 28 through 36, which we won't read them all, but it says, He was the one who sent the plagues on the nation of Egypt. Verse 37, He brought them out. Verse 39, he spread a cloud for a covering. Verse 40, he provided food. Verse 41, he opened up the rock. Verse 42, he remembered his holy promise. And verse 43, he brought forth his people with joy and gave them the land. And if we were to take the time to read through every one of those, and I described for you what those verses in those sections are talking about, describing the history of the nation of Israel, you can't miss the point after reading all of this that it was God who saw and will see all their history through from the beginning to the end. 
And the application is pretty simple. Your life is no different and my life is no different. From beginning to end, God has His hand in everything in your life if you're His child. Even the hard things, even the trials. Now look at verses 8 through 11. And we'll look at it a little more closely. He hath remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant He made with Abraham and His oath unto Isaac. And He confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. The psalmist begins here with God's covenant promise to Abraham, which was repeated to his sons, Isaac and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, to make their descendants a great nation. There was, and, and, and God chose Abraham. There was nothing in Abraham to merit God's choosing him. It was God who chose him. It was God who decided. God sovereignly chose Abraham. God revealed his purpose to Abraham. God protected Abraham. God protected his descendants when they were few in number. In the midst of a hostile Canaanite people, God was the one who was doing the work. Genesis 15, 7 says, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Nehemiah 9, 7 says, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name Abraham. God was the one who was in full control. Now look at verses 16 through 23 of Psalm 105. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure, to teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Here we find the psalmist continues with the story. He chose Abraham. He said, I'm going to give unto you this promised land. I'm going to give it to your descendants and make of you a great nation. And then the psalmist continues with the story of Joseph, that God called for a famine in the land. And by the way, just let me make this side note. Um, all of our wealth and all of our substance and all that we possess and all the blessings that we have in America, the way that we live is so far different than anywhere else in the world. But you know what would destroy it? You know what would take it out in an instant? God calling for a famine. God could bring it all to nothing, and our lifestyle and our way of life could change and could be over with. In an otherwise fertile land, God could call for a famine. And America should take heed. God's people should take heed. If God called for a famine, listen, our farms would look like the Sahara Desert, and all of our substance would be gone. And we need to remember that that our blessings come from the Lord, and we ought to be thankful people unto Him. But because God had a purpose for Abraham's offspring, 
There was a famine that came that God called for, but God also sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold into slavery. Look at verse 17. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. Joseph went to Egypt because of his jealous brothers. They had sold him as a slave. But the psalmist attributes it to God being the one who did the sending. Joseph himself affirmed that God had sent him to Egypt to preserve their lives. Go back to Genesis 45. Genesis chapter 45. And look at verse 5. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. And notice what Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 tells us. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And so even through the trials that Joseph experienced, Joseph affirms that it was God who ultimately sent him to Egypt, that it was God who had a purpose in it. And before God elevated Joseph, God tested Joseph. Look at verse 19 of Psalm 105. Verse 18 says, "...whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time his word came." The word of the Lord tried him. Before God exalted him, God tested him. God tried him. And in God's perfect time, he elevated Joseph to fulfill his purpose. Look at verse 23. Israel came also into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. Through Joseph. Jacob and all his descendants came to sojourn in Egypt. Now look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. God blessed them. God caused them to be fruitful. Look at verse 25. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. And the psalmist is saying after that, after God did all of these things with the nation of Israel, then God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate His people, verse 25. Now that doesn't imply that God is the author of evil. Rather, He takes that evil that already existed in people's hearts, and then He used it for His own purposes to accomplish His will. Listen, that truth right there was supremely demonstrated on the, on the cross of Jesus Christ, where God used evil men and evil in their hearts to accomplish His purpose of salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. God is able to do that. God is able to turn the hearts of men. Now look at verse 26. And all the way down through verse 37, He sent Moses, His servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned the waters into blood and slew their fish. 
Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spake, and there came divers sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake, and the locusts came, and caterpillars, and that without number, and did eat up all the herbs of their land, and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote also the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribe. What we read here is that the psalmist then tells the story of Moses and Aaron, his chosen servants whom he sent to bring Israel out of slavery through the plagues. Look at verses 38 to 41. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and the waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. The psalmist gives the history here and he goes on to recount the exodus and God's protection and God's provision for the nation in the wilderness through the cloud, through the manna, through the water. Now look at verses 42 to 44. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness and gave them the lands of the heathen and they inherited the labor of the people that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. The psalmist ends by repeating that all these miraculous events happened because God remembered his covenant with Abraham to give the land of Canaan to his people. Now, I went through all of that to make an application. And I want to summarize some of the spiritual lessons from this brief history of the nation of Israel. And I want you to observe that there's an important practical reason for knowing the history of God's dealings with His people. And the point of rehearsing 500 years of Israel's history was so that God's people would remember that God ultimately is in control of everything and that God graciously deals with His people the entire course of our life. He had perfect purposes in all of it. And because of that, it should cause them to choose to be obedient to His commands. So what can we take away from that? Well, there's a, there's a few things that we can take away from that. Number one, we need to remember that salvation is totally of the Lord from start to finish. The history of the nation of Israel clearly shows that salvation uh, is through God's mighty power. It's not through the, the hands of feeble men. Abraham lied on more than one occasion. Isaac favored the godless Esau over the scheming Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver who, who bemoaned God's dealings with him. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 42. Jacob's sons were cruel and immoral people. And yet God chose them and used them as the people through whom the Savior would come. God is in control. 
God calls us to Himself unto salvation for His good pleasure. And there's nothing in us that merits His divine favor. There's nothing in us worthy of this salvation. God does it because He's God and He loves people. Even before we came to faith in Christ, God graciously works in our life to lead us to a place of repentance. Romans 2 in verse 4 talks about despising the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. Salvation is of the Lord. You know what? I was talking to somebody after church this morning, and we were talking about this very fact that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we're talking about in reference to, to children and the, the, the plague that really is childhood professions that lead to false professions, that lead to all of this insecurity in the Christian life and people who are so uncertain about whether they're saved or not saved and, and all of these problems. We were talking about all of this and we were talking about the burden that we have for our own children and the burden we have for, for children in the church, but we can never ever do the job of the Holy Spirit of God in our zeal to see them saved, and in our burden to see them saved, sometimes people who are well-meaning will push through and try to do the job of the Holy Spirit when the work of salvation can only be done through the Spirit of God and the work of God. You say, well, we, we, we love them and we want them to be saved. And, and you know what? A lot of the times it's this. It's well-meaning parents who want to know for sure that their kids are right with God. And so they can feel better about whether their kids are saved or not. They'll lead them in some profession of faith. But what we have to remember, and I was telling this individual, I used to worry. <laughs> I used to worry a lot. My child's this age, and they're not saved. My child's this age, and they're not saved. My child's this age, and they're not saved. And the Lord had to teach me and show me, listen, listen, listen. I love them more than you do. I am well capable of dealing with their heart. Trust me. And my job is to teach them the way of God and to pray for their soul and let God do the work in their heart. And the point I'm simply making here before we move on is that it's the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. Salvation is only of the Lord. The nation of Israel would have been forever enslaved if it wasn't for the salvation of the Lord. The second thing we can take away from this that God is the one who's in control, is that nothing can thwart God's purposes for His people. Nothing can change God's purpose for His people. Pharaoh, the mightiest king on earth, was no match for God when he chose to deliver his people. God didn't need a mighty army to defeat Pharaoh. He merely spoke. And sunny Egypt was engulfed in total darkness. God spoke again, and Pharaoh's rivers turned to blood. God spoke, and his bedroom was filled with frogs. And his skin crawled with gnats and flies, and the land was destroyed by hail and locusts, simply because God spoke a word. Nothing can thwart God's purposes for his people. And another principle here, 
that needs to be remembered is that God's purposes are not fulfilled on our timetable, but His. The history of Israel sketched in this psalm took over 500 years, 400 of which God's people were slaves in a foreign land. And He revealed to Joseph that He would rule over His father and His brothers. But He didn't tell him the route that it would take to fulfill that purpose including spending his 20s in an Egyptian prison. God didn't tell Joseph that. He told him that he would rule over them, but he didn't tell him the route he was going to take. You know, I'm simply trying to make this application here. There's nothing wrong with having some plans in our own life. There's nothing wrong with having some desires about some things, but all of those need to be subject to the will of God. There are people who get frustrated because life isn't turning out the way that they thought or wanted. There are people who are walking through valleys and they're discouraged and they're defeated and they feel like there's no victory and they don't know which way is up and they don't see any uh, light at the end of the tunnel and I don't know why I'm walking through this valley or this trial and you need to remember that God loves you and God's purposes are never going to be thwarted and just because it seems hopeless now or you want something fixed now, God reveals and does things on His timetable, not ours. Walk through the trial. Walk through the valley. Go through the hard thing with God as your strength and God as your help, understanding His character that God has something in this for me. God's trying to grow you. He's trying to grow you. He's trying to change you. He's trying to sanctify you. He's trying to make you more like Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to tell you the route that he's going to take in order to accomplish that. He didn't tell Joseph. And yet in the end, Joseph himself said, it was God who ordained this. I'm sure Joseph didn't enjoy that Egyptian prison. Joseph didn't enjoy being betrayed or told one thing and then nothing happening and spending years more in a prison. Joseph didn't enjoy being sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph had no idea what was coming next. But as he walked through the trial and at the end of it, he, he testified that it was God who did all of this. And he wasn't bitter. He wasn't angry. He didn't let the circumstances destroy his life or cause him defeat or depression or discouragement. What I'm simply saying is we can have some ambitions, we can have some plans, we can have some desires, but everything needs to be subject to God's will and even to God's change. And sometimes change is hard because it's not what I want. And I don't want to feel these things and I don't want to walk through this. And sometimes people can start to get upset with God even because they're frustrated. But we need to remember that nothing is going to stop God's purpose in your life God reveals His purposes on His own time. 
not ours, and you may not see what the value of it is right now, but in time you will if you trust Him. And another principle here is that God's purposes include using trials to refine us. Nothing is going to thwart His purpose. He's going to reveal it in His own time, but He doesn't have to tell you the route that He's going to take. And sometimes it includes trials to refine us. Notice in verse 19 that it was His Word that tested Joseph until the time it was until the time. It means God had an appointed time. Joseph went through this until God's appointed time, the time that his word tried him. Moses was one who spent 40 years in the desert. And then he had to go through many trials of leading Israel out of Egypt and then through the wilderness. And Paul said in Acts 14.22 that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. The application is this, the hardest, most confusing times of your life, which you might be going through now, are never out of the Lord's hand. In fact, it is His purpose to use those to bring about spiritual maturity and strengthen our faith in Him. Did you know that sometimes God wants to get you to the place where you have nothing, nothing, nothing else but to reach out to Him? Nothing else can satisfy. Nothing else is going to meet the need. You're at the bottom of the barrel, if you will, and all you have is just the Lord. He uses that to bring about spiritual maturity and strengthen our faith in Him. God's strength, then, is magnified in our weakness so that all the glory ends up going to Him. And as you read through this psalm, it's basically a brief synopsis of God's dealings with His people if you read through it, you're, you're not drawn to the, to the greatness of any of these men here. And there's several of them that are used. You're drawn to the goodness and the greatness of God. You're drawn to the ability of God to accomplish His pleasure through weak instruments. And God accomplishes that purpose in ways that often seem upside down to us. How would it make sense that God reveals to Joseph, you're going to rule over your father and your brothers, but you're sold into slavery. And then you're in Egypt, and now you're in a prison, and you're going through these trials. How would that make any sense? That just seems so upside down from one who will rule, but in the end, God revealed what His purpose was. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that, that God's ways are not our ways. I don't, like this, I don't like this hard thing. But God's ways are not your ways. Why would God promise a son to Abraham but close Sarah's womb? Why would God give a promise to give the land of Canaan but then allow them to be enslaved for 400 years? Why would God elevate Joseph to the second highest 
person in the land, but only after letting him be imprisoned for years? Why would Israel be set free from Egypt, but then caused to wander 40 years and have to be fed with manna and give them water from the rock? And the question of why is very prevalent. You might say, why do I have to face difficult, even severe trials in life? Why? What's it all about? Why? And the truth is, sometimes God needs to bring us to a place of absolute weakness without resource so that we have to turn to God and all the glory then goes to Him. God's will and God's purpose is going to bring about a joyful end if we yield to the Lord and we walk through with His strength. That's what he says in verse 43. He says, And He brought forth His people with joy and His chosen with gladness. You read about the nation of Israel and you read about their history of wandering in the wilderness, it didn't seem like there was a lot of joy or gladness going on. It seemed like there was a lot of complaining going on. Right? But the psalmist says that he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness. In the end, God's will is always perfect. And you know, we struggle in life now, but life is not our end. Amen? Our expected end is in glory with the Lord. And we may toil in this life, but it's not random and it's not without purpose. That's why we have Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God. But do you read the next verses after that? Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that all things, that's even the trials, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? All things work together for good. Part of that good is the sanctification of you and me into the image of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it's going to bring about a good end. He keeps going on to the end of the chapter back in Psalm 105 or, or the Psalm. I'm sorry, in Romans 8, rather, to show that nothing can separate us from, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's power and nothing can take us out of God's hand. So I'm going to close here in just a minute. But before I do, I want to deal with our response to the Lord. So you lay out the history of the nation of Israel. 
And we see that God's sovereign purpose is going to be completed. He doesn't have to tell us how He's going to do it. But we have a response in all of that. And our response toward God for His graciousness in our life ought to be that we praise Him and that we obey Him and we make Him known to others. What is our response so often? Complaining? Grumbling? Depression? Discouragement? That's so often the response. Rather than, I know God is doing something in my life. I know God has a purpose here. I'm going to choose to trust Him. And when I see His goodness, when I see His hand, I'm going to praise Him and I'm going to obey Him. Notice what verses 1 through 7 say. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing unto Him. Sing psalms unto Him. Talk ye of all His wondrous works. Glory ye in His his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face evermore. Remember His marvelous works that He hath done. His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, His servants, ye children of Jacob, His chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth earth. You know what? We could, we could preach an entire sermon right here on just simply praising the Lord in the midst of trial. And we don't have the time to do that, but just skimming over these verses even, we find that there's enough things here to praise the Lord about for the rest of our lives and forever. Why, why, why do we let circumstance and trial cause us to fret and to worry, and to complain. When in reality, what we ought to remember is that God is trying to work something in me. So instead of worrying and complaining about the trials and how hard they are, I ought to rejoice that God loves me and He's doing something in my life. God is working in me. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. God doesn't want us to stay in a place of discouragement or a place of defeat. He wants us to trust Him and realize that He's at work in my life, and that's a good thing, and so I can rejoice. 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 5, says, "...who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation." ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying here? First of all, you're in the Lord's hand. You're kept by the power of God. That's never going to be taken away. You can rejoice in that. And you can always rejoice in that, even though maybe now for a season you find yourself weary from trial in your life. And even though you might be a little weary, you can still understand that I can rejoice in this because I know that God is working something in me that is far greater than any temporary thing spiritual good. And He's refining me. 
And one day when he appears, it's going to be found unto praise and honor and glory at the coming of Christ. We ought to praise him, even in the midst of trial. We ought to obey him. Our text tells us in verse 45, in Psalm 105 again, in verse 45, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. The conclusion of the whole psalm is that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. This psalm is focused almost entirely on God's grace toward them while overlooking the multitude of sins of God's people. And you know what? In our own life, it's no different. (laughs) God's grace, it's greater than our sin. Praise Him for His grace in your life. But His His grace should never be an excuse to disobey. Rather, it ought to motivate us to obey. God, You've been gracious to me. You've been merciful to me. You've worked in my life, and I love You for that, and I want to obey You because of that. So that they might observe His statutes. You know why you and I sometimes go through hard things in life and trial? To refine us, to sanctify us, so that we might obey Him further. And He says in verse 1, and He also says in verse 7, to make known His deeds among the people. He is our Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Israel wasn't to hide the revelation that God had entrusted to them, but to proclaim it, to make known His deeds in all the earth. You know, that's what the Lord wants out of us as well. To make known to all the world how good God is, how good He's been in my life. I think the very fact that we're here today shows us that God is wanting to deal with us and work in our life. He's been gracious to us. He's merciful to us. You're sitting here today, breathing His air with His Word opened up. God wants to deal with you in your life. Maybe He's calling one to repent of their sin, to trust in Christ. You might be here today and you're not saved. God's been dealing with you about that. You need to respond. Maybe you're a Christian, but you need to submit to God's dealings with you and stop complaining about things and start praising Him for His goodness in your life and obey His Word. Maybe that's what He wants you to do. To recognize that just because you don't see end in sight or light out there doesn't mean that God is not good. doesn't mean that God is not working in you. That He has a purpose there and maybe He just wants you to embrace that. And let Him walk through the trial with you. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is always right and He is always good. Let him have his way. God worked in the nation of Israel from beginning to end. God works in your life and mine.
from beginning to end. Our job is to respond to him in the right way. And trust him. Amen. It's the Lord working in your heart in some way, shape, or form, but you just are grinding it out, struggling day to day. Well, let's choose. Let's just choose. God is good. He always has been good. I'm not going to be defeated. I'm not going to be discouraged. I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to rejoice in what God is doing. I know He's doing something. And I don't see it all right now, but I trust Him. I can live above that. I can live beyond that. And in the midst of it all, I can rejoice in Him and I can make known His deeds. Amen? That's how God wants us to respond. That's how He wants us to live. Respond to the Lord if He's speaking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for its truth, for its encouragement. Lord, thank You that it's the straight edge. It's what everything should be aligned to. It shows us the way. It shows us what is right. And Lord, I pray that we would have a heart to say, Search me, O God. Try me. I want to align my life with your word. Lord, the word of God reminds us of your character and who you are. I pray, Lord, as you have opened up the word to us today in Sunday school, in the 11 o'clock hour, in this hour. Lord, that you have dealt with your people. We trust that you have. We trust that you will. And it's not about what men say. It's not about personalities. It's not about deliveries even. It's about, thus saith the Lord. It's about truth from your word. Lord, we desire that Christ would be exalted. We desire that the Holy Spirit would work in hearts. And we desire, Lord, that men and women would respond to you. So, Lord, as we close the day, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to reflect. We'd be able to meditate on what's transpired today. And we'd be able to say, I know the Lord spoke to me about something through his word. What did I learn today? And Lord, I pray that we would be able to respond to you, to rejoice in you, to tell of your goodness in our life. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.